Welcome to Wood Talk Online Radio, for woodworkers, by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Normally, this is where I sound very excited and I say, it's episode 116, but I'm so sick and I'm just, you know, not as bad as I was yesterday, but hey, I'm here. I'm doing my best. So uh, you have to cut me a little bit of slack. Uh, It's episode 116 for January 9th, 2013. And on today's show, we are talking about hand saws, joiner planer combo machines, milling procedures, and jointer knives. But before we get to that, of course, we have a, a word from our sponsors. Have a listen. Today's show is supported by ArborTech, makers of creative wood shaping tools. Their latest product, the TurboPlane, is the smoothest, fastest, and safest way to freehand shape wood. See it in action at arbortech.com.au and be sure to join their woodworking club for free plans, ideas, and other benefits. Remember to tell them that the Wood Talk guys sent you. And by Microjig, creators of the Gripper 3D Push Block, an American-made precision safety guidance system for the table saw and the wood shop. Visit microjig.com to sign up for their newsletter today. I, I'm, you know, I'm going to stay with the sickness running around the Spagnola house right now. I think we need to be sponsored by like some sort of like, you know, purifying hand wash or something to, uh, yeah. to help everybody out there. Or Pepto-Bismol something. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little something. Well, you know what, folks, if you have a comment, question, maybe a topic suggestion, or maybe you just want to want to wish Mark and the whole Spagnolo family, you know, a, a good well wishes. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave a voicemail on our Skype, which is Wood Talk Online. You can call our voicemail at 623-242-5180. And uh, several of you did that today, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. Don't forget, you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And you can also leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or you want to say download today's episode or any of the previous ones, you can find those over at woodtalkshow.com where you will find all of this great information so that you can, you know, you don't have to listen to me. Just go there, check it out, and... Take care of it yourself because, oh, you know, yeah. I'm tired of taking care of everybody. I'm really sick and tired of it. Tired of shouldering all that responsibility. <laughs> it is. Let me tell you, my, my back is killing me from having to carry everybody. Uh, terrible, <laughs> terrible. Well, um, I should mention that Shannon is not here right now. Um, he's going to be a little bit late. And because I wasn't feeling well and I just wanted to make sure the show got done, we started a little bit early. So as soon as Shannon uh, comes and uh, shows up on Skype, we'll pull him into the call and act like uh, act like he was here the whole time. Well, you know what's really funny is even though we're starting early, we're almost starting when we say we normally would because, as usual, <laughs> yeah. we spent like the last 15 minutes going, we should really start early. Hey, did I tell you? Yeah, yeah. We just uh, have a little conversation before, a little pre-show uh, chatter. That's right. We met over at the picket fence and just let the gossip fly. There you go. All right. Well, uh, what's what's been on your bench? Because I'll tell you what, they're just – I was I was flowing uh, with the project. Everything was going great. I was actually going to finish this bed by Friday and then the – the hell of stomach flu just hit the house and it started with Mateo and then to Nicole and then to me. And it's just been uh, 48 hours of just absolute brutal, horrible experience. So there isn't a whole lot on my bench. So I figured let's just <laughs> find out what's on your bench, Matt. Well, preferably there's nothing on your bench because I'd hate to think that suddenly it just kicked in and you're like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah. here's the perfect spot to start. <laughs> uh, try a new finish. Exactly. <laughs> Ooh, stomach lining. Anyways, what's on my uh, bench lately is I'm finally wrapping up the side tables. They are done. In fact, I, I, I'm editing as much of the footage right now. You ever, I know you've done this because we've talked about this. You have so much footage that you're just like, I could make like three or four episodes out of just this one little section. Oh, yeah. Because it always seems like when you are finishing up a project, there is just 
tons of little things and they're just little tiny things. Like I just need to adjust this. I need to adjust that. I got to take care of that. In fact, Samantha was teasing me about that. She's like, I thought you said they're almost done. I'm like, again, it's just these little things and they all add up and they drive you insane because Mm -hmm. you get done. You're like, oh, wait, there's one more. Oh, I've created another one. I'm going to take care of that. (laughs) Right. So that's the kind of little we'll call it like my little my little hell I'm in at the moment is all these little wrap up things. But all that stuff totally got pushed to the side because my new vintage saws that uh, Mr. Bob Rosieski has once again taken care of for me arrived. And this time there was a nice little signature. So they moved right from the post office right into the hands of a Vanderlist. And I didn't do much with them other than take them out. And I couldn't believe how one shiny they were Two, I was convinced at first that he actually had sent me somebody else's saws. <laughs> Because they did not look like the ones I sent him. These can't be mine. That was that was exactly. I mean, he even he did, he, he did, gave me like the the full treatment. Like if you look at his list of sauce of saw sharpening services, there's stuff like on there, like kind of clean up the handle a little bit, maybe do this, do that. I I think he even polished the little saw screws on them. I mean, oh, it's nice. just. Yeah, they're absolutely beautiful. So they went away for like a saw day spa kind of thing, right? Like a little that's ex- like that's a makeover. That's a perfect way to describe it. That is exactly. <laughs> they came back and I'm like, whoa, look at you. Nice, <laughs> nice. So Bob knows what he's doing, huh? He does. They are absolutely beautiful. I posted something uh, last night for people to check it out. I just did a couple of quick cuts, uh, one on a, a nice big thick piece of uh, pine and another one on some uh, white oak. And these things, I, they, they cut through like it was nobody's business. And wow. then just for a comparison for myself, I didn't put this in the video. I broke out my regular saw and I, I made like, uh, I'm going to work on I say I worked about a quarter of the way into the material and just said, this sucks. <laughs> through the <this laughs> saw, I'm like, this thing was horrible. Nice. So and the other weird thing is that they are so thin that it's going to take me a little while to get used to it. Because the saw plate, obviously, I, I, anybody that watched the video saw me kind of buckle it a little bit. And again, it's because I think those two saw plates put together equal about the thickness of my regular saw plate. Oh, wow. So it's going to take a little extra getting used to. Yeah, a little bit more uh, flimsy than you're used to, I guess. Yeah, that's wow. that's a nice way to put it. But flimsy with a nice sharp edge that probably could take a finger off. Yikes, <laughs> yikes. You know what's interesting? We actually have a handsaw question uh, voicemail that we'll be playing later that kind of deals with this um, sharpening and tuning up of saws and whether or not you should even do that with something like a Lee Nielsen saw. Um, can it use an extra tune-up, which is kind of interesting. Oh. Uh, but that's cool. Well, excellent. Um, well, and you know what? I actually do have a little bit that, that's been going on because I was very productive up until about, what was it, uh, Tuesday or I think it was like Monday night. <laughs> things until the storm kicked in, basically, <laughs> the stomach storm. Yeah, but I was I was hauling butt in the shop, man. I was um, at the point where I got the inner framework. I actually laid down on the inner framework of this bed just to you know prove to myself that it wouldn't collapse under a little bit of weight. Oh, um, isn't that scary? Like when I built the bed for Samantha and I, yeah. I absolutely was just like, all right, let me go first. <laughs> yeah. I know I have faith that this is going to work, but for some reason I'm still scared to do this, you know? Uh, but it was, uh, it came out really, really nice. And, and one of the things I got to do, and this ties into the whole thing about the details, like you were talking about, um, I, the center rail is one that I really didn't, you know, the side rails are holding everything together. The center rail doesn't necessarily need to be anchored into the footboard and the headboard um, with any sort of major joinery. But what I decided to do was incorporate sort of a French cleat style system at the end of the, the rail so that you just drop it in place. And the more weight is placed on it, the more it just kind of hugs it into the footboard and the headboard. 
Oh, yeah. um, so designing that so that, and it wasn't like a French cleat in the sense where you just add a piece on to one and you add a piece onto the other and they hook together. It's making it work within the pieces as they exist. So I'm trying to cut this little angle on the end of the rail, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> which was a lot of fun. Uh, but ultimately it was really cool. It was a, like a little detail that no one's ever going to really see. I think the the client will see it once when he puts it together and that'll probably be it. Um, but it just makes you feel good to be able to do something like that and not have to to resort to using metal hardware or something. Yeah, I love that when you, when you can totally just make it shop made kind of a thing because yeah. there's nothing wrong with the metal hardware, but there is just the satisfaction that again, there's oftentimes there's those little things where people will say, well, nobody's ever going to see it, and it's like one of those, yeah, but I know about yeah, it. Yeah, it's so it's a weird woodworker thing, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's probably like this in other um, you know crafts or uh, other areas where people have an expertise. You kind of take a certain pride in being able to like, can I can I find a solution for this? That's just as good, just as strong, but it's using wood only, no metal whatsoever. And it's like, no, there, there's nothing wrong with using metal, but if I can find a way to do it without it, I'm going to, or at least I'm going to yep. attempt to. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that, that definitely is something that affects a lot of us is, is that need to uh, to not use metal fasteners and if we can avoid it. Yeah, I believe it's called OCD. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's an actual technical term for the woodworking version of it, but yeah. we'll just go with that as a nice general statement. Yeah, something like that. So, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I think we can move to the around the web segment. Uh, you got okay. a nice link in here. Go for it. All right. Well, I happen to see this one. In fact, I uh, it was a listener sent this in. It was Dean Hoffman, and he mentioned something about, hey, you've got to check this little article out over at gizmodo.com. And I was thinking, no. Dean, we're talking about something for woodworking. <laughs> Wrong <And> website. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, well, you know, I do happen to like a few gizmos, so let's head over there. there and so anyways, what they have is the article is called, Where is this mind-blowing antique transforming desk hiding its Autobot logo? And we've all seen, remember when we, went to, we were at Woodworking in America together and they uh, Chuck Bender had his uh, whole little like hidden uh, little compartments here and there mm-hmm. and secret drawers and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, the makers of this particular, I don't I guess this is a, it's a secretary or something. It's just, it's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the veneers just blow me away on this. Uh, but it was built back in the 1700s uh, by master furniture craftsmen, Abraham and David Rutengen. It's German. Uh, but essentially this thing is just filled with the most unbelievable little hidden areas and little buttons that you push and secret drawers pop out. And then you push another button and a second secret drawer pops out of the secret drawer. And they even have like a fold out easel that again, you push some weird little looks like a decoration and the whole thing just pops out and it's just, you have to see the video. It's really, it's insane. Some of the stuff that they have going on here. It's pretty mind boggling. I mean, I was watching it going, it's one of those things that's so amazingly uh, well done, but it's so over engineered. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like when an engineer's mind just goes nuts and he does, and there's no one there to tell him to stop. And he just keeps going and going and going. It's, it's so amazing and mind boggling, but it's almost it's almost overboard in that sense. Yeah. You, it almost makes you wonder if like these two guys were sitting around going, you know what? They said that we could have anything we want to do. What do you want to do? And <laughs> yeah. you can just see like, okay, wait, wait, wait. And they come back in the next day and like throw another parchment down. And like, okay, let's do this and we'll do this and let's build off that. And hey, yeah. don't you know somebody who can do this? Yeah. And it, we know what? And it's good that people that like, there are people who are able to do that because that really raises the bar and says, yeah. you know what? So why can't I put a, like a hidden drawer, maybe a spring loaded hidden drawer in something. Like if someone can do all that, then I sure as heck should be able to challenge myself by putting <laughs> exactly. something as simple as one drawer uh, into a project. So 
Yeah, it's yeah. it's absolutely and the the idea also that it was built back somewhere I think they said in the seventeen late seventeen hundreds. Right. Again, just kind of just just blows me away because it's like I I guess I hate to say it, but it's like one of those. I keep thinking that we only invented certain things just recently, <laughs> and you look at this and you're like, oh, that probably explains why we have it today. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awesome, definitely. <laughs> All right, uh, I got another link here. This one is from uh, the Desert Wood Turning Roundup. I kind of mention this every year because it's a local thing here at the Mesa Convention Center. Uh, this year, it's going to be February 22nd through the 24th. Uh, it's $250. You can go to desertwoodturningroundup.com to get more information. Uh, Friday afternoon and evening, apparently, is a free open to the public portion of the show. And that includes a turnoff kind of turning competition that they're going to have. Um, demonstrators and a meet and greet type of deal there. So there, some of the people showing up, Richard Rafan. I, I'm horrible with last names, so I apologize to everyone <laughs> whose last name is in this. Um, I think you're doing better than I would, so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael Hasseluk, Hasseluk, uh, Malcolm Tibbetts, I know how to pronounce his name. Uh, J. Paul Fennell, David J. Marks, we know who that is. I think you mispronounced that one. David J. Merks. There you go. Marcus. Uh, Molly Winton, John Lucas, and Matt Monaco. Uh, so that's coming up February 22nd to the 24th. You definitely want to check that out if uh, you're in the Arizona area or is traveling through. You don't want to miss it. Nice. I like that. A turnoff turning competition. I can tell you right now that if Samantha was with me, it's an immediate turnoff the second I say we're going to anything woodworking related. <laughs> she would win. She'd yeah. win. Who's turned off the most here? Uh, my wife, yeah. sir. You win. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, but anyways, hey, let's move on to the, the poll of the week. Do we oh, have a yeah. poll of the week? Uh, we actually like, do have a, a real, like, poll of the week, but do you have the poll of the week is the question. I sure do. Another, <laughs> again, this was submitted by a listener. Scott Miller said, you know what? There's somebody that I think a lot of us know, especially if you're really big into pro wrestling, and that is Ivan the Polish Hammer Putski. And so, Ivan, uh, you are our poll of the week because I do not want to be hit by anything called the Polish Hammer, to be quite honest with <laughs> Absolutely you. Absolutely not. That sounds like it would hurt. Okay. Um, well, our poll of the week that we had from Tom, our buddy at Tom'sWorkbench.com, is about New Year's resolutions and whether or not you make them. Not not even so much woodworking related, just in general. Um, do you make resolutions every year, Matt? I do, but I have yet to actually follow through on them. In fact, I, I do it now just because it's a tradition. <laughs> he just does it now because we talk about it on the show. It uh, doesn't mean he actually does anything. That's, um, in fact, I have to think about it before I come on the show. I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, so we're going to do the resolution some stuff thing. Up here. <laughs> what did I not say last year? Oh, what the heck? I'll just recycle last year because who really paid attention? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not too big on resolutions. I mean, I'm, I'm a big goal setter, but I don't like the concept of the whole New Year's resolution. But I, I tend to think about what I want to accomplish in that year and then just work toward it as opposed to making this like big monumental change to things, uh, you know, at the start of a new year. It right. seems to set things up for failure most of the time. <laughs> yes, it does. And I'm really good about setting myself up for failure and stuff like that. I'm like, I am going to lose 10 pounds on the first day of the new year. There and then I think to myself, I'm like, no, I should set it more realistic. <laughs> I am going to get up at some point between morning and night of the first day. I'm going to wake up and then I'm going to eat breakfast. That's right. So there. All right. So Tom asked, do you make or uh, did you? He does say woodworking. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I should have read this more closely. Did you make woodworking New Year's resolutions? Um, and let's see. 43, almost 44% of the vote says I don't make resolutions at all. <laughs> Woodworking or otherwise. So I guess there's a lot of people <laughs> who feel like I do about that. Uh, 25% said, yes, I have. 14% said, no way. Uh, 17% said, I thought about it. 
<laughs> which is great. It's like, yeah, I maybe. love their honesty to be on, you know, quite serious. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So thanks everybody for participating in the poll and Tom for making the poll. It's always entertaining. And there's that one half percent that's just like, wait a minute, this isn't anything for knitting. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the knitting show? What What's going on here? All right, so let's move to some voicemails here. We've got the the one I was mentioning before from uh, Chris about his handsaws, and I don't really have a whole lot of input on this. Hopefully, Shannon will be here any minute so he can chime in too. Um, but uh, if not, it's all you, Matt. All right, we'll give it a good shot. Okay, here we go. Hi, guys. It's Chris from the Lighthearted Woodworker. Uh, I have a question about handsaws. I have a Lee Nielsen dovetail and tenon saw, as well as a Japanese Suzuki. Uh, in a restored Disson that I bought on eBay. Uh, the Lee Nielsen saws, they're beautiful saws, um, but they're advertised as being sharp, you know, ready to use out of the box. But I find myself used, uh, reaching for the, the super sharp, thin Suzuki or the 150-year-old Dissonant Sons uh, saw more often. Both cut wood as if it were, you know, butter. Well, the, Neil, well, the uh, Lee Nielsen's require a bit of delicate touch to, you know, start the curve. So my question is this, is it worth it to get a, a new Lee Nielsen or a saw like that tuned up? Um, I've also been taught that altering the rake at the first inch or, or so of the toe will ease the first cut of the wood. Um, and I suppose the same question could be applied to plane blades, you know. Um, so thanks, guys. That's all. And I uh, love the show. Take care. All right. Thanks for that, Chris. So generally speaking, I know when it comes to like planes and things like that, that we get from these uh, higher quality manufacturers, it's almost the rule of thumb that like, you know, you don't touch them very much. I mean, especially the video that the, the Shores just put out in response to that fine woodworking article, basically saying, don't screw with these planes, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so does absolutely. the same thing, does the same thing apply to their hand saws? You know, I, I, I was trying to look this up. My, my computer actually just froze up on me as we're doing this. But I, I want to say that, well, number one, I have no doubt that the Lee Nielsen saws are coming to the individual uh, sharpened and ready to go. I just can't imagine them sending out something and saying, you might want to touch this up a little bit yourself. I, I just don't see that. Yeah. But I think a lot of the things with, with the modern saws is – I, and this has a lot to do with, as I was mentioning, the thing about my, my new saws and kind of bending them a little bit. The steel seems to be a, just a pinch thicker. So I have a feeling that that might actually be a, a little bit of the reason why mm. it doesn't feel like it's starting as easy as perhaps uh, the older, more vintage saws. Sure, sure. You know, because if you really think about it, if, it, if it's a little bit wider, you're going to have to, of course, put a little extra effort behind getting it started. Yeah. And really, anytime anybody, you know, uh, also talks about like a Dazuki versus a Western style saw. That's almost kind of an unfair comparison because the Japanese blades are just so so thin, I should say, <laughs> yeah. that it's just like, you know, that that's like saying, I can't seem to get this camel shoved through this uh, eye of this needle. <laughs> I don't know why. Yeah, well, and I would imagine, too, when it comes to hand saws that you may start to get uh, people may have a personal preference so that, you know, maybe you want that for, like you said, the first inch or so, the, what do they call that? The progressive pitch saws. Right. Um, you may have a personal preference where the, the Lee Nielsen saw may be in and of itself as it's sold. No, it does not need tune up. But if you're looking for a certain something out of it, you may be able to modify it to work better for your particular style of work. Right. So, yeah, I, I could easily see that. All right, because I've got one, and you know the thing is, I don't cut enough with a handsaw to even tell you what cuts better than another. It's like, does it cut? Yep. 
Sounds good. <laughs> I'll use it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, got, I got the piece of uh, wood cut right in half. <laughs> in fact, that's why I buy Lee Nielsen because I don't want to worry about, you know, all the details there until someday when it actually needs to be sharpened. Yeah, very much. Well, you know, and, and another thing, and again, this I have to throw this back to Bob Rosieski, and I know Shannon would have mentioned this too, is a lot of times, uh, depending on the, 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 the distance saw, the uh, rake and all of that good stuff, you know, we always hear people talk about like the rake and the pitch and all these good terminologies when it comes to, to sharpening. It's very possible, and again, I don't know what the uh, the pitch, the angles are for the Lee Nielsen one, mm-hmm. but it's very possible that the, the, the distance saw that um, Chris has may actually have a very different rake and uh, pitch for the angles itself. I'm just going to say angles because I keep going back and forth on those, <laughs> but it may be set up just a little bit different and that mm-hmm. that could also be doing it because I, I, I don't, again, I, I, don't, I can't really get into the Lee Nielsen thing at the moment, but I, I don't think they, I think they have a very general uh, angles on those. So right. that could have something to do with it because the, the two saws I just got, I got back, one is set up for more of a softwood and one is set up for a hardwood. This is something Bob and I had talked about. I didn't know that you could set them up for the different type of materials. Right. And I noticed immediately the one that I had set up for the softwood that when I did attempt to use it on the hardwood, again, it was like one of those halfway through, I'm like, I'm just, I'm killing myself. This isn't doing anything wow. for me. This is insane. So Maybe that might be something, you know, something that he could consider is the fact that it's maybe the angles are just that much different. Sure, sure. And subtle difference in the angle makes a huge difference in its performance, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and I, I really I always thought people were just giving lip service to that until mm-hmm. I tried it last night. And then I'm like, wow, there is a huge difference. There you go. All right. Got another email or voicemail uh, from Blake. He's got a question about jointer planar combo machines. Ooh. Hi, guys. This is Blake. I uh, live in Washington. Quick question for you. I'm a primarily hand tool woodworker. Uh, I do want a couple of power tools that I don't have right now. I want a joiner, a planer, joiner and a planer, and a bandsaw. I'm wondering what you think of the joiner planer combination machines. I don't have a lot of space in my shop, and I'm kind of kind of wondering if it's if I'm getting myself into a situation where I'm going to have a hard time after transitioning with everything being set up right or if they're a viable option and everything is is pretty seamless as it seems to be. I uh, just wanted to get your guys' opinion. Uh, thanks. Bye. All right. Thanks for that, Blake. Uh, Matt, have you had any experience with a combo machine? You seem like a good – I know you have separates, but you seem like with a basement workshop and not a lot of space, you'd be a good candidate for one of these. Right. The only experience I've had so far with a combo machine is I had a chance with Tool Select to try out um, it was a jet combo uh, jointer uh, planer. It was mm-hmm. a, the six inch model. And I really wouldn't say that was a great one to kind of base any type of judgment off of because that more or less a lot of these machines, you know, you are changing the whole entire table around. I mean, you get like that nice, like 12 inch wide surface to work off of and everything. And I would kill to have that. That would just be awesome. Yeah. Uh, but the, the one I did have. It's a great idea, nice little compact and everything, but that one for me just – I had a really – I didn't enjoy the experience to be quite honest with you. Uh, but I think from what I've seen with the other videos where they're doing the demonstrations of them, they really look pretty uh, pretty easy to, to switch around. So yeah. I personally would love to have one. I'd love to kill – you know, get rid of two machines and have just one taking up the uh, the floor space. Yeah, well, from from what I've seen, and I've seen a few at the shows, I've uh, gone, and this is actually a couple of years ago when they were first starting to really become a little bit more popular, at least here in the States. I don't know how long they've uh, been in Europe, but 
uh, either way, the the interesting thing is the Jet version that you were talking about, I kind of had the same experience with it. Um, the problem is, you just got to do a little math. If this machine, which is supposed to be two machines in one, basically, if it costs less than either one of those two would be if they were sold separately, mm-hmm. then you might have a, a problem with the machine. The problem is, <laughs> yeah. you know, you combine them, and yeah, I understand there's still one motor, one uh, cutter head, one set of knives and whatnot, um, but ultimately, there has to be more stuff in it. So if you only pay 400 bucks or maybe 500 bucks, you're probably not going to have a quality machine. And the thing is, when you need to switch from one operation to another, you need the highest quality possible because it's so easy for things to get uh, out of calibration uh, with all right. that back and forth movement. So uh, no matter what you do, it's never going to be an easy, simple thing to switch back and forth. It's always going to be a pain in the butt. Uh, especially if you go, ah, you know what, I, I need to put an edge on that one. I've got to go back to the joiner operation. Even if it takes you 10 seconds, that's still going to be 10 seconds more than you really want to invest in it. But if you're you know, short on space, then that you're going to overlook that because you are getting these two great machines in one small footprint. So what I would recommend is avoiding the cheaper ones. Don't get the little benchtop models. I think that they are very difficult to adjust and to keep yes. adjusted. Um, I was very frustrated with the the one that I had some time with and, and would not be comfortable recommending that one. But if you step up, almost all these companies have a step up version. So even uh, Jet has a floor standing version. Grizzly has a few. Um, what is it? Rikon has one as well. If you yep. step up to the ones that are like, what, 1200 bucks to 1600 bucks at the low end, and you could certainly go higher at like Laguna's uh, version, uh, Minimax and Hammer, those companies all have them as well. Um, if you step up to the higher price range, now you can go sort of on a feature-by-feature basis and look at these machines, and they are pretty much what they advertise to be. Yeah, it's still a pain in the butt to change them back and forth, but it will work, and, and it will hold its settings, and it is able to be calibrated in the first place. <laughs> right. Well, you know, then the one thing, every time any of the machines that you've listed, they, they definitely, I think, the one mach- the one aspect of it that probably is going to be better than the other is going to be the thickness planer. Uh, aspect yeah. of it because when I'm, when I'm looking at the joiner sure it's great to have like that almost because you almost have like a, a whole 12 inch wide joiner right but then then you're kind of the whole thing with like the length of the the, the beds and everything you're, you're kind of losing out on that a little bit so Good sure point. you have the much wider space now but now you're going to have to come up with something with for a little extra support on here and it just that to me that's one of those again like you kind of mentioned you, you're going to kind of give up something for the convenience of having the two put together. Well, not only the joiner bed length, but also let's say you get like a 10 inch joiner planer combination machine. If you only have 10 inch on the joiner, that means you also only have 10 inch on the planer. Yep. You know, so, so you might wind up with a limitation there as well. So, so you do gain that width on the jointer, but you lose the length and you lose the width on the, on the planer action. So definitely, I mean, there's no doubt about it. These machines by all, by all counts are a compromise, but you're getting two very large tools in a much, much smaller space. Um, but again, my advice, definitely spend a little bit more money if you get that combo machine. Otherwise you're just going to be frustrated. And especially he mentioned he's a hand tool woodworker, which means he's really only going to these for very specific tasks. And if he, and if he has, it's the same thing. Like when I tell people who are power tool woodworkers who get in the hand tools, get something good, because when you do venture off into that other arena that you don't normally play in, you want it to be a good experience. So if you go and, you know, if you use power tools all the time and you have this crappy untuned up hand plane, well, of course you're going to hate using your hand planes. You know, it's got to <laughs> exactly. be, a, it's got to be tuned up and it's got to work well. So 
Yeah. It goes the other yeah. way too. It, 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 it's a toss up. I mean, they definitely, they're great, but yeah, there's limitations for one sure. way or the other. Yep. All right. Next voicemail we have is from Mike. And Mike has a question about our milling processes. Ooh, I love milling. Hey guys, this is Mike from California. I have a question about milling for you. I just started a, a new build and uh, brought wood into my shop. And I wanted to find out uh, how long are you guys typically letting uh, wood acclimate to your shop um, before using it? And also, are you guys milling in stages? Um, I read an article about how you or Gary Rogowski likes to mill with his joiner and planer oversize and then sticker the parts, uh, wait a couple of days and then come back. I didn't know if you guys were doing that, if that's overkill. Uh, if you guys are milling all in one stage, I'm curious to find out and uh, hope you guys uh, keep doing your shows. Thanks. Bye-bye. We'll keep doing our shows. You keep listening, Mike. That's right. Yep. Okay. Because, I'm going to uh, do something. The day we stop doing it, you're going to know, and then you're going to call us, and we're going to be like, Mike, you told us to stop, <laughs> didn't you? I thought that's what he said. Um, yeah, and I'm going to do something kind of annoying. I'm going to pause on his question and go back one second. I, I And I blame the medicine for this. Okay. <laughs> um, I actually had taken a few responses from a Facebook question I put up about joiner combo machines because I don't actually have one. Um, I was going to give was going to give my opinion on it, but knowing that I don't have one, I felt it would be good to get other people's opinions. Are you kidding? So. When you don't have an opinion, that's the best one to give. <laughs> yeah, right. An uninformed opinion is always the best opinion, right? I found that that's how it's gotten me through life unbelievably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you go to my Facebook page, the Wood Whisper Facebook page, the question is right there at the top right now. Um, and there's a lot of answers, but I just took a few here, people who had specific experiences. Uh, Andy Hall says, my problem with any type of combo is that when it goes down, if everything is standalone, you just lose one machine and then you can carry on with the other bits, etc. while repairs are carried out. Um, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, Eric Wilson point. has the uh, GO634XP from Grizzly. He says it's heavy as a tank, but works great. John Higby says that he has the Jet 12-inch JJP12. Says I like it a lot because of the sheer power, ease of switching between joiner planer and the single footprint for two solutions. My only shortcoming is the width when planing. Twelve inches is pretty narrow, and I've been surprised at how many times I've missed only the slightly wider thirteen and a half inch delta planer that I got rid of. Ultimately, I would still make the same decision and purchase this jet. Uh, no, how do you say that? Nux Abbey Paris says I own a Hammer A three forty one. Good when you haven't got much space, but if I had to buy it again, I'd buy them separate. The changeover is quite quick, but I still find it rather time-consuming. Uh, so there's quite a few more there if you want to take a look. Lots of mentions of different brands and very specific machines, which I thought would be uh, pretty useful to answer his question. Just kind of give him a, a starting point to look at uh, different brands. Nice. Crowdsourcing. I like yeah. that. Yeah, I, was, uh, I mean, I thought about this ahead of time. I got it all ready, and then I skipped right over it. <laughs> Stupid medications. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, we had uh, the question about um, milling. Oh, right. Yes. So and, let me ask you this, Mark. Sure. You're working on this on this project right now. Mm-hmm. What is your process for when you bring home the lumber? How long do you let it acclimate? Do you let it acclimate? I try to. I try to, but I don't let the work. I don't let the work like wait. Like if I have time to work on the project and the project needs to get done, I just start. Um, I don't have a set amount of time that I say I must let the wood acclimate for X days. Um, I figure the longer it's there, the better. But ultimately, especially in my area, any wood that's been stored in a warehouse or in a shed or something in this area is going to be pretty close to the environment that I'm going to bring it in anyway. 
Right. Um, so there's probably not a whole lot in the way of acclimation that needs to happen uh, in, in my area. Might be different on, you know, East Coast or in the Northwest or places where there's more of a variable humidity. But mm-hmm. but for me, it's just not an issue. So I'm curious, do you wind up having to do that? It really, it depends on the time of year. Like this time of year, uh, depending on also where I'm picking it up from, usually the one lumber source that I have is even though they have kind of a quote unquote heated warehouse kind of a space, mm-hmm. it still is definitely probably a little bit colder than my air than my my shop. So oftentimes when I'm bringing it in, I will let it sit around for a couple of days. But I kind of get that itch where I'm like, I just want to get started on this. Yeah. And a big confidence for me is the fact that the vast majority of the work I'm wood I'm working with is kiln dried, and I've had good experience because I tend to go back to the same place uh, over and over. A couple of places I should say I go back to for all of my stock. And so, therefore, I'm already familiar with the fact that they seem to know what they're doing because I mm-hmm. have really had never had an issue with the stock that I'm getting. And I think that's a big thing. Like if, if I were to pick up this lumber, say, off of uh, Farmer Joe's property, who suddenly has like a stand up for like, you know, cherry or uh, 10 cents a board foot and he milled it himself, then I probably would be more apt to really pay close attention to the acclimation process. But since I'm buying it from a reliable source that I'm familiar with, then sure. it's really that much more confident for me just to jump right into the project and get started with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the other thing is, and this is something that was brought to my attention a few years ago, uh, Glenn Huey had an article and it was posted when it was with uh, popular woodworking and it was concerning, uh, the, the milling process. And if you mill a board evenly on all sides, so if you take, you know, an eighth of an inch off of one face, then take an eighth of an inch off the other face, that that helps to promote, even drying. And essentially, as you, you like basically peel layers of wood off, you're exposing wood that has a little bit more moisture uh, tucked in underneath. So if you take even amounts off of both sides, it loses moisture evenly on both sides so that you don't necessarily need to wait this long acclimation period. And I think it was, it was Boas, right? Rob Boas, who did a little video and, and he said he put it to the test and actually, uh, yes, I just looked it up. The flat truth about milling stock. So Excuse me. He actually references uh, that original article and he put it to the test himself. So I'll put a link in the show notes for this, um, but I think it might be helpful in sort of illustrating the point that you may not necessarily need to um, to wait two weeks or three weeks to get to your wood. As long as you mill it properly, it will most likely have no problems. Um, yeah. the, the other thing is if I'm if I'm going to mill it and then I know I'm going to leave it for a couple of weeks, I've got to go out of town or I'm not going to be able to get to it for maybe even like three or four days. Um, and if there's a, a critical thing coming up, like for instance, if I'm, I'm trying to, to, to do a panel glue up or I'm getting ready to do joinery, that's probably not the thing you want to mill and then wait four or five days for. Right. <laughs> because things do tend to move. Even if they only move a little bit, they could move just enough to make your life miserable. Um, so I try to make sure that, that my milling is done in such a way that whatever I'm milling will soon find its way into a fixed position or wherever it's eventually going to be. And that way I don't have to worry that even if it does move, it's going to impact the work minimally. Right. Well, you know, it, one thing that I, I've been kind of thinking about, because I'm still, I mentioned this a long time ago, I was going to try and put together something a little bit more about winter woodworking and how people should, or how people can can adjust to it, especially for, we have a lot of listeners that have shops that are out in garages, on heated spaces. And, and, and one thing that is I've been doing to really kind of help wrap my mind around how wood works in like a, a cold, colder climate or especially when you bring it into say a shop like mine where my furnace is in my shop area I, I just got a really cheapo thermostat slash um 
what I guess humidistat, I think is the right word for it, where it gives you the, you know, your, your percentage of uh, humidity. That is a uh, humidity checker upper, Matt. That's it. Humidity checker upper. I got the thermo- <laughs> the, the temperature thingy with the humidity checker upper. Right. If you get one of those and if you can kind of gauge what the, you know, the ambient temperature and then, of course, what, you know, you can really watch the humidity. Does it fluctuate a lot in your shop? You can almost kind of adjust and that will help you to determine, you know, if mm. you need to take some extra steps in there. Right. Because when you think about kiln drying, what is the one thing with kiln drying is that they raise the temperature and they decrease the humidity. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something that a lot of people in their shops in the winter, if you happen to have an inside shop or you have a heated space, there is a, a good chance that you could suck all the moisture out of the air in the process of heating it up because you want to stay nice and toasty warm. Right. And so that's one of those things. If you just it only cost me, I think, like three, four bucks at the home center. I grabbed one. It's a little cheaper one, a plastic one. I just threw it up onto the wood rack, and I've been paying attention to that. And that has helped me decide, like, do I really seriously need to let this sit for a long time, or can I just jump right into it? Yeah. You know, because if if you keep it nice and stable, I'm not too worried about it. But I, I, I've tried that thing, like you're talking about with mm-hmm. uh, Glenn Huey, and I do that all the time now. I'm like, oh, wait, okay, that second pass on this side, right. I need to flip it over and do it on the other yeah, side. Yeah, you find yourself counting counting passes all the time. Yeah, um, and then I yell at the kids when they come in. I'm like, damn it, was that two or three? <laughs> I lost count. Uh, you know, the only to, – to his other part of his question was about do we mill in stages. Right. And I'll say the only time that I do that, and it's usually done as a preventative measure, but the only time is if I'm dealing with something like – trying to think of a situation. Maybe you're making – uh, doors for like a sliding panel cabinet and the door itself is made of solid wood. There's no frame around the door and it's just a, you know, maybe a quarter inch thick piece of material laid up into a, you know, a nice wide panel. That's something that you cannot afford to have that thing start to warp on you because it needs to be able to slide back and forth. So in a case like that, that is probably something that I would absolutely mill in stages just to ensure over time that it's going to stay flat. Uh, most right. other things tend to be incorporated into a project fast enough or are held in place by other parts of a project that I don't really think too much about it. Um, yeah. So no, normally that is not something that I do, but in special circumstances, yeah, I, I might do it as a preventative measure. Yeah. I, in fact, I know the article that he was referring to in there and I, I do exactly what you talk about too. And I've even gone so far as to, I have like a whole pile of bricks that I don't, I think they came with the house to be quite honest with you. I hope <laughs> I didn't pull them out of someplace, but I'll have those moments where I'm like, all right, I'm going to be gone for X number of hours or X number of days. And this piece is so cr- crucial that I'll actually like stack weight stuff on it yeah. and then walk away from that. And my, my kids will walk down there like, dad, why do you have you know, stuff stacked on top of there. I'm like, just leave it alone. Don't touch it. <laughs> well, you know, and I can't even imagine on like doing that on every project. The only oh, no. way, the only way that would be possible is like, at least if you want to be efficient is if you're, you've got multiple projects going on so that like, okay, I'm going to mill this to like stage one and then let it sit. And then while that's in stage one, I'm going to work on this other project and then sort of have things staggered so that you can get back and forth. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting on your butt for a lot of the time waiting for this wood to uh, to acclimate. Yep, absolutely. And then one last thing, you know, just kind of in in the realm of that, as I have some uh, stock up on my, my lumber rack that I ended up picking up. It was uh, the S4S, basically. I ended up getting it from a lumber mill. I said, you know, if you can take care of this, joint it for me and thickness plane it, you're going to push me along just that much faster in my project. Mm-hmm. And then it turned out I didn't need as much lumber as I thought. So I've had some really beautiful cherry up there that's already been milled and everything. Uh, for like, It's been sitting up there now for four years, five years, something like that. <laughs> nice. And it has barely had any, any, any. Hello, Matt. 
what the heck was that? Okay, <laughs> well, I don't even remember what the heck we were talking about. Yeah, we were wrapping up the whole thing with the uh, um, with, with the whole milling process. So I'm sure we, we could cut a little something out of there. And go to the next <laughs> we didn't need to talk about that anyway. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, yeah, it was weird because la- your last few words repeated, and I was like, oh, he's doing some 80s rap with us. That's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's the special MC version of right. the answer. <laughs> what, 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 what? All right. So the last uh, voicemail that we have here is actually – on the topic of jointer knives and specifically buying, replacing, sharpening, and all that good stuff. So let's have a listen. Hello. I just had a question about jointer blades. Mine are dull, and uh, I need to either uh, sharpen them or get some new ones. Uh, I'm sure I could sharpen them, uh, but I need some recommendations on a a jig or uh, some kind of setup. Uh, And at what point do you get new jointer blades? And uh, which do you recommend? I know they have carbide tipped ones that uh, the what is the high speed steel. Um, so if you can give me your recommendations on, on that. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Thanks for that question. Um, you know the thing is, the, I have probably sharpened these current sets that I have the current uh, jointer knife sets, which I'm about to get rid of and upgrade to a. Um, uh, Shelix cutter head, so it won't matter pretty soon, but I've sharpened them about three times. And generally speaking, when you send your stuff to someone who sharpens them, the person who sharpens them can probably give you a real good idea of how many more sharpenings this these knives will take. Right. I would hope at least, because there's going to be a point where you just don't have enough meat there anymore um, <laughs> that you're not really going to be able to position them in the jointer properly. My guess though is with a good set of knives, that's going to take a while. That's going to take a lot of sharpenings before you're at that point. Yeah, I could easily see that. Cause you know, that's, I, I, there are a lot of individuals that we'll, I'll hear from once in a while. I think that we'll hear from that. I, they're under the, the idea that maybe they could sharpen them themselves. And I'm going to put it out there right now that there is no way in the world I'm ever going to sh- attempt to sharpen my own jointer blades <laughs> because they are just too, important (laughs) right right. it's too easy to mess those up (laughs) it's a very very long long edge to be able to get perfect and and that's why i too have always i've never even bothered to to try it myself it's always something that i'd rather just send off make sure it's done make sure like there's enough things that i can screw up on my jointer that i don't want the blades themselves to be part of the problem (laughs) yeah exactly because (laughs) if, if you just mess up like say one end because i with the Tormek system that I have, I know one of the, the jig sets that I have in, in the, one of the kits that I purchased mm-hmm. is for doing jointer blades. And I'm like, that's nice. I'm still not doing it. I don't care how <laughs> square this thing is. It's yeah. not going to happen because you only need to put a little extra pressure on one end and suddenly you have a nice little cambered style kind that's of a it, blade yeah. when, you, when you don't want to have it. So uh, I know there was a, a question about, you know, is there a jig or something for that? And then, nah, I, I, I there's a whole bunch of them out there. I, I don't have any that I, I'll recommend because – I, I, I don't, don't do even it. use the what I have. <laughs> yeah, I don't do it myself either, um, but I will send you to one video that I think is kind of cool because maybe if you're uh, adventurous and, and you want to give it a shot, it might be worth it. There's a fine woodworking video that shows a technique that is actually taught by our good Betty, our good Betty. <laughs> our good Betty, huh? <laughs> you know, my good buddy Betty. Uh, my good buddy, Hendrik Varyu, and mm-hmm. it's the method that involves sharpening them in place. Okay. Which is like the lazy man's dream. Exactly. You know, so basically, do I have to actually stand there? Do I have to hold it? In thing? fact, you just get someone else to just stand there. You just go to lunch. 
exactly. but yeah, you do sharpen them in place and it does involve putting a stone on the outfeed table and you immobilize the cutter head, uh, this and that. So there's quite a bit to it. Um, and Hendrik Varu knows his stuff. So, uh, you know, when he endorses a method, I actually, um, even if it's something that I have never attempted myself or even would probably even think of attempting, I've got to give it some, you know, some weight because the guy knows what he's talking about. So, right, so that may be one option. Um, and the good thing is if it is in the, the cutter head, the things are already set up to be parallel, you know, so you, you might, it's probably setting you up for a better sharpening experience. The same things those jigs try to, to emulate when they hold the blade and in perfect fixed position. Um, right. You know, they don't, they don't get any more fixed than when they're clamped in with the, with those screws in the cutter head. Right. You know, so that's well, something to think about. Well, let me ask you this. What the, the blades that you have right now, you know, regardless of whether the fact that you're getting the, the new cutter head jerk, um, but <laughs> the ones that you have, are they high speed steel, carbide tipped, or what do you have? All of mine are high speed steel. Yeah, and, all I've ever had is high speed steel. Right. So the one thing that I always hear, you know, of course, carbide tipped or carbide in general, it's it's going to last longer. It's going to be a lot tougher. But the problem is they are a real pain. To, to sharpen if you attempt to sharpen it yourself because yeah. you really have to have a sharpening media uh, that can handle that type of material. And high-speed steel just seems to be like one of those that, number one, they're, they're far more inexpensive compared to, the, to anything carbide. And number two, um, at least as far as I'm concerned, the experience I've had with high-speed steel is you can get a much sharper edge with that. But right. then again, like I said before, I don't, I won't even attempt to sharpen my jointer blades. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The the high-speed steel is kind of what you're going to come across most times. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the carbide, it's a tough choice because the carbide's more expensive, uh, but then ultimately it lasts longer. I mean, if you get ten times the life out of it, then you know if it's more expensive at the outset, then that's not much of an issue. Right. Um, kind of like the same thing with the, the Shelix cutter head. You know, you're paying more up front for it, but when am I going to actually need to do anything to maintain that? Well, I'm going to turn each one 90 degrees when it becomes dull and then I'll turn it again. And, you know, five years later, I might think about buying new <laughs> little inserts. <laughs> you know, so if those little carbide um, blades actually last 10 times as long, it may actually save you money in, in the long run. Uh, the other thing is, like you said, sharpening is an issue. If you're really looking for that finish cut quality. Um, you may be better off with the high speed steel because it should in theory, at least give you a better finish cut. Um, also the type of material you're working with, if you're working with hard woods and possibly like a mixture of like laminated materials, maybe carbide is going to be your, your best bet, but high speed steel is probably a little better if you work primarily with soft woods and you get a nice cleaner cut on those softer fibers. You know, let me ask you this because I, I apparently am horrible when it comes to either my jointer or my uh, thickness plater. I hate changing blades, mm-hmm. and I am that guy that's just like, just because I have to hook up a team of horses to pull it through the machine, you know, I, I'm not convinced that it needs to be sharpened yet. <laughs> How? When, when is? When do you send yours out to be sharpened? I mean, is there like a certain point? Is it like every so every so many months? Is it every so many projects? It's is it yeah. Just- I, I don't have any regular thing because I don't build regularly enough uh, to mm-hmm. to count on a project basis. But generally, you know, the first thing I do when I start to notice performance dipping, either it's becoming harder to push the the wood over the blades or uh, I'll send a board through the planer and I see it tends to start stalling as it's going through. Uh, The first thing I'm going to do is wax the tables and just make sure because sometimes it's just friction. It's not actually the blades. Once I wax the tables and then I start seeing that problem continue and it looks like it's having trouble pulling it through or I start to see some chip out or the the jointer, it's just almost always 
this was way harder than it should have been to push through, and the cut quality is not nearly what it should be. Uh, that's probably a good time to send it out because then you're starting to also get into a safety issue uh, because right. the more you have to to, to push and, and force that thing through that tool, uh, the more chance there is that you're going to, you know, if you trip, you've got more weight behind you and you could put your hand right into the cutter head. Um, yep. So that's usually what I look for is the stalling first and then, of course, difficulty pushing it through. Nice. Yeah. My, my family's like, dad, you know, it's starting to smoke in the basement. Is there something <laughs> wrong with your machine? I'm like, no, I can get one it's more. It's fine. Cut it's fine. <laughs> I can plenty more, plenty more. I'm and, down to one sixty fourth of an inch that I can make a pass and it doesn't stop. <laughs> yeah. In reality, uh, you know, for, for most hobbyists, it's going to take a while. I mean, right. if you're sharpening once a year, you know, that's probably pretty, pretty much more than most hobbyists will need. Uh, here's another good thing that, that I like to check. Uh, when you're using your jointer, if you if you're like me, you keep the fence back to give you the full capacity. I almost never move my fence in for for any reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you join on on edge, you're always cutting on the back portion of that uh, of that blade. So what you can do is try jointing closer to the front of the jointer, and if and sometimes noticing the sharpness is a very subtle and difficult thing until you have a side by side. So joint one edge on uh, by the fence and then bring the piece forward and try to joint at the front. And if suddenly it's cutting like butter and you go, holy crap, I didn't realize how bad it was. Um, that's a good sign too. And that's the problem is most times, unless you have a basis of comparison, you lose perspective for what a really good sharp joiner feels like. I'm, you know, I'm actually going to have to try that because I do that exactly the same thing. It's always the fences in place. I barely ever move it. In fact, I can't even remember the last time I probably yeah. have to look in the manual to figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah. You'll always wear the back portion of those. If you do it like I do, you will always wear that back portion first. So if, uh, again, do a side-by-side test. Do one one pass in the back, one pass at the front. And if you notice a big difference, then, yeah, it's probably time to get a sharpening. Yeah, and I think it's pretty funny what you said about the blades too because when I sold my six-inch one, uh, I'd had it for a couple of years. I never even used the extra pair of blades that I had to have because I knew I was going to go through them. So when I sold it, I'm like, oh, yeah, and by the way, um, here's these new blades. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're all yours. They're still wrapped up. Be careful. They're sharp. Nice. All right. Well, I think that actually does it for us. And unfortunately, um, you know, it was was jury duty situation for Shannon. So uh, I blame the government for this one. (laughs) <laughs> I'll go right along with it. You know, if he would just get himself a nice misdemeanor, he'd never have to worry about being pulled up for any type of jury duty oh, again. Yeah, no, we should talk to him about that. See if we get him drunk, ask him to go driving. No, that's that's not even funny, Matt. That's not funny. That's but not funny. I think he did make a comment about the fact that his uh, street apparently is where all the drunks in his neighborhood like to hide from the police. <laughs> so. Nice. Good to know. All right, man. If you want to get him that contact info, we'll get out of here. All right. Well, of course, folks, if you have heard something today that you want to comment on or maybe uh, you have a question like uh, the voicemails that were sent in, there are several different ways you can contact us. Leave us a voicemail via Skype. Look for us. Our name is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Don't forget you can email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. And you can even leave us a comment over at our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for any of this information or perhaps any of the links that we talked about or you want to check out downloads from previous ones, maybe even today, head on over to woodtalkshow.com and you'll find all of that great information over there. Hey, yo, that's awesome. Yo. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. And I apologize if uh, I was a little off today because boy, do I still feel off. I've got that, you know, where you have that sort of that low grade fever feel where you just got a oh. little bit of a cold sweat going on. And you just don't quite feel yourself. <laughs> Yes, I yeah. well actually that's pretty much every episode that I'm in. So <laughs> just, well, I'm just so nervous. To the world of Matt. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully next time we'll have a more Shannon full episode. 
Um, he was here in spirit, though. I felt his presence. I think we should just let Shannon just have the whole entire show. We'll just call in. We'll just take a break. I, I like that idea. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See ya. Like you're there!